Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and this is the sound of a spider's web. It's the result of some of the work of Professor Marcus Bueller from MIT. Marcus and his team have been working on sonifying the proteins and amino acids that are the building blocks of all life on Earth. That might sound like an interesting science art project, but where it becomes really interesting and really scientifically interesting is when they translate music and these sounds back in the other direction. Later in the podcast, we'll hear the sound of the COVID-19 virus and discover how this research might even help reveal the inner workings of our brains. Here's Marcus Bueller. I'm a professor at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, United States. Now, trying to get a different perspective in, in hearing how uh, physical structure, structures can, uh, can sound like. But how did this come about? What made you go down this road? Yeah, for many years, we've been exploring uh, similarities between material structure and other types of languages, um, one of them being music. And the, you know, the way we got to this essentially is we, um, we, my lab has long been interested in studying how materials drive their function. And so, you know, thinking about a, um, the strength of a piece of material or the toughness or its color or whatever property you're interested in and, and, and usually some physical phenomena. And, you know, we, we model these um, properties by understanding how building blocks in a material interact. So in a, in a material, you have atoms and molecules and um, grains or whatever material you're looking at, so different building blocks. And the, the way they interact in, in different ways, uh, at different scales and levels, controls the, the properties that we're, we're trying to understand. And, and that process is very similar to what we see in, 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 in other types of languages, like, well, human language. Uh, but also music, where we have building blocks like sine waves, waveforms, which are, are assembled in a, you know, in a basically in different ways, um, different frequencies or different instruments, different um, melodies or chords, and in an orchestra potentially. And so you have a very similar way by which these systems are built. And I've been fascinated with understanding how how different are the systems? Are there similarities between them? Um, can we learn from one and the other or vice versa? And can we exchange information between them? And so that's been something we've been studying for a long time in my lab and well, mainly theoretically in the beginning. And then we have some experimental analysis as well, computational and including in the last you know couple of years, we've become very involved in um, using this paradigm of translating matter into sound and, and matter and also sound into matter. Um, as a way of doing research and asking questions of um, how can we generate new types of musical structures and forms, new instruments, and can we design new materials for music as well? I, I imagine if uh, if uh, people listening or anything like me, it's not something that they would ever have thought of, right? My wife's a, a, a violinist. She's played with the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra for a very long time. I've sat in many a concert and never have I thought, I wonder if we could change this music into materials well so you know, it comes down to when you think about a um um you know very literally if you if you you describe a material you know based on mathematical equations right you, you say here's a an atom in a lattice and this is the space group and this is how it's arranged and you know here's the size of it and, and all these things so we use mathematics as a language to describe material and then we can you know we can make it basically in the lab or we can you know synthesize it and so in a way 
you were using language already to describe phenomena in nature and matter, and we design new materials through this process. And so, you know, in music, it's just another way to think about a language. And we um, can ask the question: if you if you hear something that somebody has created, well, what would it actually what would it look like or feel like if it were to be a material? And and that's it's a challenging thing to do, obviously. So we have to figure out what are the mechanisms to do this translation and make it happen but but in principle it's sort of in that way and it's it's interesting when you yeah you go to a concert and you listen to that and then you say well you know it kind of has an effect on your on your on your mind and your body you enjoy it or you you know you have certain emotions from it um and and the question is you know these feel like real material effects you know they they affect you but um so we have been thinking, you know, one step beyond this, if if you could actually materialize what you hear, you know, how would it, you know, does that look like or touch? How would it feel like if you were to hold a piece of Beethoven in your hand or Bach in your hand, you know, what it would really be like? And 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 so so that's um, generally the idea behind that, and it really comes back to this um, way we think about materials as a, as a very, in a very fundamental mathematical sense, in, in that it's it's really a collection of of, of objects or building blocks we call them that are interacting and. And that's that framework. When you go to that level of abstraction, you can apply this framework to to anything, you know, including materials and including music and, and a lot of other things. And so now you can you can translate. You know, it's sort of a, a mapping of of something that's in a, in a very abstract space where you can you know make some operations work that are seemingly impossible or weird, but they can actually be made and you know they can be done in, in that mathematical way. And 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 that's what we that's what we can do. A few years ago now, some of the physics world team visited Marcus and his team in their lab at MIT. From Physics World, here's Tushna Commissariat. My Physics World colleague Sarah Tesh and I, we had a really great day visiting Marcus's lab. This was in March of 2019 because we were already in Boston for the APS March meeting and Marcus very kindly organized a day for us, even though he couldn't make it there. But we got to go and see his lab and a number of others. Um, And I remember what really stuck out to me was um, hearing the stories uh, about their their spider silk project and 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 th- what they were working on 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 scanning a spider web um and we got to go uh, to the lab and see um what work they were doing on that then and uh, we were shown around by Francisco Martinez and Zhao Quinn who were then part of Marcus's group uh and you know they they took us to the lab where they first had um the spiders build a web in what was basically um a sort of uh a, a a cube but that was like a jungle gym for the spiders and they were hoping the spiders would build their webs um in this hollow cubic structure but uh spiders don't tend to like labs very much uh and they don't tend to linger in in hollow cubes if you tell them to uh so they had to first figure out how to make sure that the spiders didn't all run away and escape and that involved putting uh these these hollow cubes on on some kind of surface and then suspending that within a a big tray of water like a moat for the spiders Uh, and they had some sort of um, trouble with that they had to make it they they realized that the spiders could jump so they had to make the moat big enough and make sure they were in the middle of the room so the spiders can leap away 
And then they had all sorts of problems making sure to keeping the spiders alive, to be able to feed them because spiders don't like dead flies. They like live flies. So they needed special kinds of flies that would still fly, but wouldn't fly too far away. So the spiders could get them. And they were joking about how um, they had these special, slightly mutated flies from the biology department that wouldn't fly away too quickly. Uh, Occasionally, the spiders would escape anyway. And so they have these sort of mutant fly-eating spiders probably nestling somewhere in the bowels of MIT as we speak. (laughs) But after all of that, they did work out and they got the environment comfortable enough for the spiders to build these beautiful webs. And it kind of just looks like a really big cobweb, almost a bit bit scary when you look at it. Um, But then they showed us their laser scanning technology um, for how the laser runs through it and how they build up these transverse sections of the lab and seeing what its geometry looks like. And, And that was just amazing watching even just the scanning happening. And from that scanning, they then built these amazing um, maps of what this 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 spider silk and the spider structure looked like, and of course, all of that led to this unbelievable art project um, called Spider's Canvas. Uh, that's this sort of performance piece that had music and sound and projections of this spider web, and we were really lucky that it was being displayed at MIT, the art project, while we were visiting. So not only did we get to go and see the very um, sort of building blocks of it all in the lab we got to see this beautiful amazing final project where it's the size of a room and you're walking around within the bowels of this spider web and it was really something quite amazing to see and that was only a small portion of what marcus's lab does here's marcus bueller again we, we thought about lots of different ways by which we can um you know, sort of create you mentioned the violin which is a beautiful instrument and it's been around for a long time um, and, you know, we've always been thinking, well, what if you heard, had different types of, um, you know, ways of, of creating sounds, which might not be a macroscopic string, right? Um, and, of course, there have been of wild musical creations. I think John Cage worked on things like this, where you have all sorts of weird ways to make, to write music and, and use sounds, sounds of uh, sources that are unconventional. But sort of in that vein of thinking, you know, we thought, well, you know, what if we were to look at some you know, things you cannot actually hear with your ears and, you know, uh, like a spider web. And, and in a spider web, we basically used this web and we, we thought, well, how can we listen to that? I mean, it's almost like a, like a harp, right? It's, it has a lot of different filaments and, and strings. So it's very close to the idea of a, of a conventional musical instrument. But, but yeah, you can't really hear it without mathematical processing. You need to do something to make those frequencies audible. And that's something we can do. But yeah, so now you can think about the spider web as a, as a harp. We can pluck the strings. You can listen to the whole orchestra of strings vibrating. You can see how the wind affects it or whatever your or tension. You know, we've, we've pulled it. We've broken the spider web, essentially, and increased tension. Now you you kind of hear this um, the, these, 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 these web filaments vibrating, which, which aren't tuned, right? And that's the unique thing about that. It's sort of, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's observing nature. You know, you kind of hear how nature sounds like. And this, that, that's a very, very foundational way to think about it. You know, want to use it as a microscope, you know, and how, how does a spider web sound like? And it's not created by humans. It's not created with the intention to uh, listen to it necessarily. But of course, the spider lives in this vibrational universe where she, you know, will sense vibrations, very keen sense vibrations to orient itself in the spider web. 
um, so we have a sort of a connection there, and then yeah, we we can we can listen to what it sounds like. It is something we haven't heard, um, but something that is quite quite interesting actually when you dive a little bit deeper. And now and then we worked with um, a bunch of other people at MIT um, to um, to actually create performances with that. And um, um, Evan Sapirin and Christine Southworth were uh, two leading this. Um, together with my student Isabel Sue, who who played the spider web, and so basically they created an orchestra on stage. You know, and I think when the physics world team was at MIT, I think they saw a version of that, either the whole thing or maybe a part of the installation that they made. But um, yeah, so so that was the you know the the idea of of using the basically the knowledge of the physics of the spider web that we have developed in the vibrational spectrum to then create a, a human playable instrument and then create a performance actually that you can, you can attend just like you would go to a concert. You could now go to that spider web um, concert and, and it's, and it sounds weird and, and you might play some of those um, recordings of that. And you know, it sounds weird because it doesn't sound like anything that we conventionally listen to, you know, it's, it's a spider web. It's not a violin, um, but that's what makes it interesting. And I, and I think I'm particularly interested in this, in this question. If you, you take that spider web or that that protein or whatever source you have now quantum phenomena what if you want to you as a human interact with that man you want to make it you want to you know kind of massage that into something that sounds more appealing maybe or you you play that with a human violin or you you play that with a conventional you sing to it or you you know uh, you begin to interact with it from the human perspective and that's something that we i think we we're we're very excited about right now is that we have a way of translation right, between the, the different scales and different paradigms, different species where we can now listen to the way the spider web is like for the spider and we can interact with that as a human. We have thoughts, we can, you know, we can interact with that web and, and create new sounds, vibrations, and perhaps that, you know, there's a way to communicate now through all these different modalities that, that other organisms use. You know, we use a particular way of, of interacting with our environment, which is modality of of sense and, um, and smell and vision and and hearing, um, but but of course, yeah, spider is going to have very different ways of mod- diff- very different modalities of interacting with the environment. They have different kinds of sensors, basically, yeah? and 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 so that translation, you know, is there's a lot of really interesting physics involved and mathematics and numerical tools. A lot of this comes down to uh, deep learning methods that we use to, to actually make this translation happen. You know, so it's a complex problem to translate between human languages, but it's even more interesting, I would argue, or, or, or equally interesting, perhaps, uh, when you begin to translate between languages and expressions, between materials and spiders and humans and all sorts of different representations. Yeah. Earlier on, I was having a phone call with somebody and I was just gazing out of the window. There's actually a spider's web on the window and a fly hit the web the the web vibrated the spider came down picked up the fly took it back ate it that's a process that's happening there's vibrations those vibrations you're talking about is that the literal vibration of the web as the spider this fly hits it and then the spider moves yeah exactly yeah exactly so yeah spiders and many other animals and and, and humans are not any different now we we use vibrations as a way of understanding the world around us and you know we we have ears and eyes, but um, you know spiders have very keen vibrational senses, and so you're right. You know, they when when a spider hits the web, oh, sorry, a fly hits the web, um, they will not only be able to notice that there is a fly, but they can actually localize it. It's like a radar, if you wish, and and that's the unique thing. You know, now they have all these sensors on their um, on their bodies, and they can through processing these signals understand where the prey is located, and they can catch it. Spiders have very poor eyesight. You know, most species they 
um, they see very little. It's not like they, they watch the fly fly in there and they catch it. No, they actually use the vibration signals. Um, and it's not limited to the fly flying in. It's, you know, literally, you know, anything, you know, they, they find other spiders, um, they find threats in the environment. You know, people believe that ants can sense um, earthquakes happening because they have very keen senses. So there's a lot of different species that have these modalities of, of contextual um, processing, which allow them to make a decision about what they're going to do or what's going to happen uh, just by listening to these 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 periodic changes of, of energy, essentially what which what is what it is. So yeah, and, and in the in the sonification of the webs, that's what we, we use that literally. You know, we basically say, well here's a web and let's see how it vibrates. And and that's sort of the, the physics of that is well known. It's a macroscopic thing. It's it's nothing you know fancy there. Um, the, the the challenges were a lot in the in actually creating the models. And once you uh, you want to make that work, you have to create a computer model essentially that that where the spider web lives in. So that's something we spend a lot of time on and figuring out how do we how do we create something like this? How do we make it so that you can interact with as a human on stage. Yeah. So that's something we did, like I mentioned earlier with the team uh, at MIT, the music department, they have lots of experience in how to build um, performances and, 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 and how do you make that in real time and so on. And so, you know, we, we hooked up our model with these virtual reality environments so you can become, it becomes an instrument. Yeah. So, but that is, um, I think the challenge there is, and, you know, how do you, how do you, Build this web into the into the computer. How do you scan it? You know, how do you get all the nodes and the connections? So you probably saw uh, a web in your window, I'm guessing. But the, the webs we've been looking at are, are three dimensional web structures, which we we study with in collaboration with Tomas Sarcino, who is an artist in Berlin who has a, a huge collection of 3D webs, and he um, actually introduced us to the three dimensional webs and. Um, that was the whole beginning of this avenue of studying spider webs in 3D and, and digitizing them. And, and we have worked with Tomas and others for many years in, in various ways to make that, to explore that, that aspect. There's the spider web thing, there's the vibrations going on, but then there's proteins and vibrations and amino acids and vibrations. Well, so when you, when you um, look at the world, um, you know, at every level scale, um, you, you can see that the spider web you mentioned, you, it doesn't always vibrate. At least for our eyes, it's sort of static. But but if you were to go inside the spider web and you look, you know, what's the molecular makeup and how do the molecules well look like? And if you were to take a movie of the molecules, they they actually are going to be wiggling around all the time. They they're not sitting there. Like if you open, I would say you open a textbook, chemistry or physics textbook, you're going to see these beautiful pictures of this molecule, this water molecule, or the protein, and and it looks like it's just one thing it's one structure but it's actually not like this it's uh, it's a continuously changing shape and so molecules like proteins and others are continuously moving and vibrating that's the nature of how they how they look like and and then and so the the concept for that was essentially to we don't even need to excite it like in a spider web you have to sort of pluck it you know to hear it but at the molecular level, you you hear that that noise or music or whatever you want to call it all the time, just by observing it, and that's because the the energy in the room, basically outside, is enough to to perturb the bonds in the molecule in such a way that they they vibrate. You know, this is continuous exchange of, of kinetic energy, which is temperature, and the deformation of a structure, and that's what gives a characteristic sound, if you wish, to everything in the world. You know, there's a sound of a of a protein, there's a sound of water molecules and sound of everything and 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 if you can 
you know, systematically explore that, you, you have a, a whole orchestra, you know, at your hands quite easily because there's a lot of different kind of chemical structures in the world. They vibrate, but not at a frequency we can hear them at, right? And are you literally just translating that vibration into an audible vibration? Exactly. So, like, good, good point. Um, when you, when you were to, if you were to look at this um, or try to hear it, I mean, our ears are not made to hear that. And, and, and the same with the spider web. You know, our, our, the frequencies are going to be way too low. We wouldn't be able to hear that as a, as a sound, right? So we have to do something there to bring it. If, you, if we want to listen to it as humans, we're going to have to transpose those sounds. And that's something that is done all the time, you know, when you have, um, you know, basically a, somebody, uh, a vocalist performing, usually what they do is they would transpose the this, this song or the melody to a range that they can sing. And, and it doesn't change the musical meaning, right? So you can play for Elise at, you know, different frequency ranges, as long as you keep the ratios of the frequency identical, you will always recognize this is for Elise, or this is some whatever song um, or melody. And, and so that um, concept is what we use. So we use the transpositional equivalence um, formalism to do that. And, and we can then transpose frequencies that are way too high for us to hear into a range that we can understand as humans, but it retains the musical information or the structural information the way it would actually sound like if we were to be able to hear it. And that's what we can do with algorithms, computer algorithms, we can, we can make that happen. And so now we can, we can listen to it with our ears. Deep learning usually comes when we want to understand the language. So this, um, the transposition is fairly simple. It's like a mapping, it's a dictionary you, you, or mathematical operation where you scale the frequencies. But um, but the deep learning comes in when you when you think about well. So now you have these these notes being played by the spider, or you have the notes being played by the molecules, like the DNA codes. You know, kind of a um, a way of encoding different amino acids, which each have a unique tone. So now you have a pattern and the question then becomes, it's like translating, you know, English to French or whatever language to one another. And you have a code that would be readable to the cell, understanding how to make the protein. And there's sort of, you can, you can look at it or you can listen to it. Um, but it's essentially as a, as a pattern of, of notes or melodies or structures. And the, the deep learning comes in usually when we want to understand that and mind that, you know, like say, well, what if we, can we understand what this code would mean as a protein? You know, if we take music from Bach, for example, that's what we've done in a recent paper, um, we have these patterns we can develop by, by listening essentially to the music and then ask the question, well, what kind of protein pattern would this refer to? We can make that mapping because each amino acid has a unique note. So we can, we can with an algorithm, we can simply, simply align them. It's like a dictionary, you know, you say, well, this is, um, there's some organization in there, but then the, the, the deep learning comes in to us saying, what does this mean? It's, it's sort of saying if you, if you translate um, you know, English to French, you, you have a way of mapping the words from English to French, but you don't know what the sentence actually means you know, in that different language. Um, and and that, that is really what the deep learning can do. So it's not just the building blocks, it's how the building blocks form a meaning, a significance um, when they interact. And and this is what the deep learning does very well. Right? So we can, we can take a sequence of notes and we can predict what protein would that actually be if, if it were a protein. You take a piece of music, you could take any piece of music, and then using this, this process from which you create music from the amino acids, the proteins, 
you you can revert that back again. And sometimes that might be a protein that already exists, and sometimes it isn't a protein. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, sometimes we exactly. So there could be a new protein altogether. It could be something that would exist. You could make it, um, but it, nature hasn't found it yet. Or it could be it could be proteins that, um, and we find all sorts of in the spectrum. Some proteins are, are found that are have been found in a similar way by nature through evolution, and some proteins are are totally new and they're kind of found through this other evolutionary mechanism, which is human imagination, which is um, we also a product of the evolutionary process, but we, we we create these interesting sequences which we call music. But yeah, they actually have other significances in other contexts, and that's um, that's really the basis to this. Or what excites me really about this is that we can make discoveries. It's always like um, you know, in science, we we always want to have new microscopes or new ways to understand the world and get new data. And this is another way to do that. You now we can now say, well, we have data out there already. Um, which is essentially, I would, I would argue that when, what we create as humans um, through creation of, of anything really, but particularly art, of course, or music as an example here, um, you know, is an expression of ourselves. It comes from us. It's, it's, it's something that, that is a, a, something that we create to project something that's within us to the world, you know, and it's in a, you know, it could be very literal, like in literature, it could be a story with experience, could be autobiography. Um, in music, it's a lot more abstract, which I think is why it's so interesting. It's it's not something that there's, there are some more algorithmic musical compositions, of course, but a lot of times it's an inspiration or an idea or, or maybe mathematical rules even, but they're projected, you know, kind of processed through the brain. And, 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 and so we believe that in this process by which we create these notes and sequences and patterns, um, we inadvertently project some information about the way our brain and our body works into that structure that's created. And that's the hypothesis we're trying to work from. And if that is the case, then by analyzing these human-created structures, we might be able to learn something about how our brain works or how our body works or how our consciousness maybe looks like. And, and this is what we're trying to understand through deep learning. Okay. And how do you test that? So there's this always question of universality. You know, can you find a pattern that you can, it's about normalizing the patterns. So it's sort of saying um, if one civilization has made an invention and this civilization, let's say it's alien, you know, alien worlds and, you know, have they invented the wheel? <laughs> kind of like this, right? Um, if we find the wheel being invented in basically a hundred different planets, different civilizations that have never communicated, that seems to be the wheel is a universal thing that, you know, is very powerful. Maybe that's true. So that's kind of how we approach this, you know, sort of asking the question, are there patterns that appear in proteins and DNA? Um, are there patterns, and are there patterns that are universal that are often found in music as well? You know, are these structures you know, similar? Um, and if that's the case, there seems to be some universality. That's one thing that we can test that pretty easily. We can just compare the patterns. And like I said, we have found that there are some similarities there. Um, the other thing could be, you know, if um, a pattern or, or something discovered in one domain, is it useful for the other domain, right? Can we make a protein and actually, is it going to have a function that might be useful or not useful? Just does it have any function? Um, is there a protein that Bach has created or whatever music has created? Um, and and what is it going to do? I mean, is it a protein that maybe has absolutely no reason, no, no positive or reasonable function? It's, it's just a protein that maybe does something that nature doesn't need. That's a that's another test. You know, is there something that we can create has a functionality? It doesn't just exist, but it has a function on top of that. And um, and that, that would be another test if if there's sort of this, this cross cutting um, discussion. And then the other one would be if you if you were to analyze, and this is something that that 
maybe isn't possible today yet, but if you were to take the whole body of knowledge of of the creation of music, and if you were to say, you know, can or other other expressions of humans, can we mine that data? You know, what do we discover? Are there, are there kind of hidden patterns in this? You know, like like we have a lot of data from in physics, you know, that we we analyze and then we say, oh wait, here's a theory that explains this, right? There's a there's actually a pattern in that data, and and it's because the mass affects the outcome in that particular way, or the the geometry of this of the shape, you know, and this goes through through the history of science. So the question could be, we have this data, we can mine the data. And this is where I think most likely we're not going to be able to mine that with the human brain because our human brain can only create, it's hard enough to create one piece of music. Now we're looking at billions and billions of creations from many different humans, but computers can do that. And, and so the question would be, you know, can we uh, find uh, interesting patterns in that um, that maybe we cannot explain or maybe they explain a phenomena that, we we haven't understood yet. You know, here's a here's a way these building blocks come together, and and it's it's really about the building blocks. You know, we you think about the um, the the emergence of function of a physical object. It's 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 really it's, it doesn't actually matter what the building blocks are. It's it's how they relate with one another. Right. So music, for example, literature, music in particular, is, uh, sits there, and we enjoy it. But and we have of course found mathematical rules behind it, and there's a lot of you know theory around this, but. There's also a really big question of how, why was it created? You know, how does it come about? And and, and that's fascinating to me. And I, I feel there is, we, we believe, we hypothesize, there's a lot more in that data than we understand today. Would you foresee us possibly deciphering that in your lifetime? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, because we, we, we have really made it. Now, I just look back 10 years ago, we when we started this investigation, it began by like I mentioned earlier, observation, um, and then we developed mathematical theories for it, and, and it was toy problems, basically. Now we we can treat much more realistic systems using computer simulations, and um, I think we're at a point now where the you know the intelligence, if you wish, from uh, computers is approaching a level where they can understand um, really complex relationships in, in all sorts of different systems, in particular um, methods from what's called natural language processing, which is basically the the, the toolkit that allows um, computers to um, express ideas and concepts or learn concepts like like humans do, and uh, and and it's all around the idea of of discrete building blocks, which is really we we know the world is built around that idea. You know, we're not um, necessarily a continuum of energy; we have discrete states of energy, and I think when we when we expand on that. Um, we're going to arrive at a, at a sort of description where the physics of matter is is a language which we we have with words that have multiple states and relationships. Um, so yeah, so I think we're getting to the point where computers are smart enough, or you know, good enough, or models are deep enough to to capture these relationships. Uh, and you know, there's still a way to go. But I, yeah, absolutely, I think we can mine that and, and understand relationships much more better. I mean, we have already shown that we can mine. Um, existing music and make proteins from it and the other way around. Um, and now we could take much more data and try to discover much more complex relationships. So in principle, that's already possible. Now, Johann Sebastian Bach is, of course, no stranger to where science and music collide. And his music is, of course, included on the Voyager spacecraft. The idea being, with the Voyager's record, that should an alien species find the Voyager spacecraft, then they'd be able to decipher the instructions on board and play the record with the sounds of Earth. There's a story that when they were choosing the sounds and the music to go on there, when somebody suggested Bach, 
someone, perhaps Carl Sagan, said, well, that would just be showing off. I wondered why Marcus chose it for this research. If you think about this from a science perspective, um, you want to pick something that um, has, well, one way to start with this would be to pick something with structure. And, and Bach, of course, has, um, and in fact, the Wilberg variation piece that we worked with is a really a mathematical composition where, you know, he basically started with the beginning, the aria, and he said, well, let's, let's, you know, evolve this piece into many different directions and use mathematics to some degree, um, but also creativity and imagination and, and the, you know, the, the secret sauce, I guess, by which he was able to um, manipulate notes and add new notes and, and patterns and rhythms and so on to it. But it is a very structured way. And, and we began to explore, you know, how that, mathematical description mixed with a little bit of, or a lot of creativity, maybe you could say, but with creativity, you know, would, would perhaps relate to a physical structure like a protein. And, um, but it can be done for other, since then we've looked at other types of compositions. And, um, and so there's definitely a lot to discover for sure, but that's how we began with that type of music is really that it's a, it's a very structured organization like DNA is essentially. Okay. So if I chose, um, Napalm Death, it wouldn't work quite as well. Well, probably would actually, <laughs> because um, you know a lot of it. I, I would I would say you know in biology you you actually find that there are very few notes, you know, very few. A lot of the ideas are repeated all over. So I mean, if you look something like you know punk rock, it would be you could have a um, uh, very simple ideas of riffs, you know, that are repeated. Yeah, that's common in nature. So you would probably find. Maybe some amyloid proteins or some some beta sheet proteins, which are basically like silk, for example, is a, is a structure that's very interesting materially, but it's a repeat of the same sequence over and over again. And so, yeah, you know, yes, you would find, and that's, that's the interesting, the sweet spot is actually when you look at something that's very simple, um, you're going to probably find something like this there as well. But if it's more complex, the... Uh, the ordering might not be as obvious. So if it's a very simple structure, we can actually recognize it as humans. We can look at the data and see, oh, yeah, here's a pattern. In the more complex uh, systems like Bach, I mean, it's not as easy to see. You know, you need, um, you need more algorithmic power to really understand the relationships and how that protein would look like. But I, I think that's an interesting question of how, well, different styles of music and, and, and their, you know, completely... Um, you know, random evolutions of notes and and and, and unstructured music, or um, uh, you know, in, in improvisations and variations come in, and it's it's very interesting. And there's a lot of analogies to biology, of course. You know, biology essentially is the base. If you just look at evolution, it's making species that are about the same, and then suddenly there's a mutation, right? And so you create um, attempts to vary the structure a little bit, and that creates really interesting variations, which sometimes lead to new species and new versions of the species, and they might, they're much better, and so they can survive longer, and they, they take, you know, like the virus is a great example recently. You know, you have a, a new variant, which is much more infectious. Um, well, it takes over, right? And, and so so that's the idea kind of with music as well. You have, um, um, you know, if you just look at the mechanics, we, we call it the mechanics of music, essentially. You look at this and say, well, how is it created? Well, there's an idea, but if you were to you know, pull together a million ideas that are all different, nobody would probably enjoy that. I mean, you know, so what the way what we enjoy as music, um, and you know, if you look at some rock music and, and you know, and and even Beethoven or Bach, and you know, there's repetition in there. There's there's a there's, there's a concept about repetition and variation. And 
And it's much more complex in classical music, of course. We have a lot more variation and complex arrangements of structure, which is why we were so interested in this. But in, in any music, you have that, that balance. And, and I think humans respond to that so well because it's really how we're made. You know, our bodies are made from same DNA, the same cells with a little bit of variation. You know, skins, our skin cells are a little bit different than our bone cells. And they make proteins that have some similarities, but they're also differences. And, and I think music is just a reflection of that structure in our body, which is what we talked about earlier. What can we discover from music? Well, it's the fact that we... We have all these similarities on the surface. We can just see them. Um, and, you know, what else is in there that we can't see? You know, because we, we have a very hard time looking at individual molecules and understanding how molecules interact in our body. But music might be a way for us to dis- dis- disentangle these relationships more clearly. If this sounds familiar to you, then you may be one of the one million people who streamed it so far on Marcus's SoundCloud account. Because this is the viral hit that Marcus had, sonifying the coronavirus spike protein. Yeah, so there's an example how the this concept of looking at music or sound actually led to scientific discoveries where... We, we essentially did that when COVID began. We, um, and, and there's a lot of different musical pieces on, that I created on, on, on the COVID pathogen itself, the spike protein, which essentially I, we did to explore that, that new protein, which was suddenly very famous. Um, and you know, before that even, um, in fact, just a few months before that, I worked with a different kind of virus and I made music from that. So it was sort of a um, very obvious thing for us to do at the time. But so we're listening to these and then we uh, discovered that, well, um, you know, these variants were coming around and, and we began to see well, all these different variants which are slightly different but almost the same as, as the original wild type and so we, we 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 heard them and we saw that we heard that basically they sound similar but a little bit different and we then began to explore that scientifically this is where the science comes back to science now and said well if they sound a little bit different can we characterize the way they sound different quantitatively can we write down equations and you know, put on some numbers basically and create correlations. And we basically discovered that among the uh, the different types of coronavirus species, if you wish, uh, MERS and SARS, COVID-19, uh, so on, um, and the variants from that, they uh, they kind of fall on, a, on, a, on different classes of, of types of infectiousness and lethality. You know, the violence is different for the different types of COVID uh, or coronavirus diseases. And they correlated actually with the way we could quantify these these vibrations. And so we created a model that would predict by just looking or listening um, to how the molecule changes shape over time, which is the, the, the vibrational spectrum, how that can actually predict the, the outcome at the uh, epidemiological scale, which means you know, the, the virus becomes more lethal, less lethal, and so on. And, uh, and it's an outcome, you know, how you can begin to ask scientific questions based on hypotheses you're developing by, by using your human imagination. And you're listening to it and you say, hey, here's a direction. Let's explore that. And then we could, you know, uh, pin down the data. So in, in, the, in that study, we didn't use human subjects to investigate how it sounds like. We actually, of course, used the, we created the data. We never listened, but we don't necessarily listen to it anymore. At that time, we, we calculate the vibrational spectrum. We use mathematics to buy down the different spectra and then we compare them but but it, the idea originally came from the 
the human, the human subject listening to the music and having that inspiration. look at the coronavirus and everyone has seen these pictures and I think we're all tired of seeing them probably but they all they kind of look like a, it looks like these spike proteins coming out of the virus and they they look like physical structures which they are but what's not captured in these pictures is that um, this virus spike um, is, is actually continuously moving it's like it's vibrating like a guitar string you know, it's, and that's like I said earlier it's from the thermal motion it's basically the way the, the temperature in the room is high enough or outside even um, to to basically perturb the structure, the shape. And so this protein is um, not a single structure. It's, it's a collection of many different structures. They change over time. And that defines the spectrum. Just like in a guitar string or a violin, you, you, you plug it and you can actually draw the physical vibrations and you control the different modes. And that can be done for molecules as well. And so this you know, gives rise to these the sound of this you know, structure. And you can then ask the question, how would that sound like if you were to... Um, Listen to that. And again, you can't hear that with human ears. You, know, you have to transpose that to human uh, audible frequencies, but you can do that with uh, the algorithms. And now you have a way of listening to that. And there's different levels of interpretation we have done with this. One is to listen to the whole structure, but we can also go to finer detail and look at and listen to the individual amino acids and the individual folds in the protein. And, and this particular, the spike protein is a, a incredibly complex protein. You know, it's, it's uh, quite, quite interesting actually. And, very big um, and has thousands of amino acids. And so it's very, lots of different small structures and larger structures and repetitions and variations. And this is sort of what makes this protein uh, look like the way it does. Um, but, and so what we've done also in, in this work has, has received a lot of attention at the time um, is to create a whole symphony essentially from that structure. Because now we have a lots of information about the structure, you know, at a DNA level, all the way to the entire structure of this whole uh, molecule. And, and we can translate this actually into, um, into uh, a multi-instrumental um, um, realization, right, where, you know, each instrument would play, um, would model a particular part of that protein, right, so from the smallest to the highest level. And um, that, that whole piece is an hour 50 long, because the structure is so complex. It takes that much time to, to build in an audible model of this entire spike protein, which is only a small part of the entire virus. So it just shows how, how much complexity and how much music is out there. If you wish, if you, if you were to listen to all musical forms in, in nature, you have a, an endless source of a playlist, basically. But, but yeah, so that's that piece. And, um, and, and it was a way, I think, for... It's interesting to see, you know, at the time we, we, of course, everyone was talking about COVID as the beginning of the pandemic, and well, still, I guess we still are talking about it today, but at that time, it was an unknown thing. We didn't know where it's going to go, and um, and by listening to it, you had, a lot of people had just a different connection and relationship to that virus. I mean, you can't see it, but now you could hear it, and you couldn't just, I mean, you want to look at a picture on the screen, that's one thing, but the vibrations is really... Um, reflection of the structure of this protein, and um, and it was always nice for me as an, as an educator is that it gave me the opportunity to talk to a lot of people about proteins. And I I had so many you know, interviews and articles and so on where I I could say, yeah, this is how it sounds like, and this is what a protein actually is. Here's an, an atom, a molecule. That's what DNA is. This is what an amino acid is. And um, it was a great way to reach, uh, I think. The, the general public and, and, and get them maybe excited about STEM and science and engineering and, and physics and all these different areas. But 
Yeah, and it, it, it opened, you know, a lot of people don't know about what protein actually is. You know, I think protein is something to eat, which it is too, but um, yeah. so, so it was a good way to um, to reach out and, and and have a discussion on on all sorts of questions, you know, from the, you know, the, the people that are more interested and more familiar with music and art um, had a way of understanding this this virus now from a much more quantitative perspective now is a um, probably the most interesting part of that is that outreach we could do with this with this music it feels like the sort of thing where people might latch onto it like when people latch onto quantum physics um, you're talking about vibrations you're talking about music do you worry that people might stretch this too far and start using it for pseudoscience oh absolutely yeah no there are in fact I, there are even before we were involved in this, I mean, there are, there are people that are, um, you know, claim that, and, and, and it actually comes from, so I want to take a step back. There are um, different cultures and civilizations or, or, you know, kind of schools of thought in, in other cultures, not the Western culture, others, where vibrations do actually play a very important role in healing. And that's, for example, in, in, in Asia, India in particular, many other cultures, um, certain tones and, and instruments are part of ceremonies and healing processes and, and so, yeah, there's a there's sort of a, a already a, some heritage out there, and and yeah, you're right. And there are people latching onto this who are basically saying, oh, here's the you know the Southeast Asian you know way of healing, and here's the coronavirus. What well, can we get rid of the coronavirus? But and, and that would be very careful, of course. You know, obviously, that's there's definitely lots you know could be nonsense out there, or or let's say put it that way. Um, I want to say nonsense, but I want to say things that are unexplored yet. And I think if we don't understand it, we can't really make any claims. And but there are people that probably stretch it a little too thin. Absolutely, yes. Um, um, you know, and that's definitely something that you know can happen. But I, uh, you know, for us, we 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 try to keep that line very clear. I mean, we're not claiming, you know, that we can well <laughs> treat diseases uh, with this, but but we really talk about the physics and the mathematics and the material science and chemistry behind that. And I think that's a very solid ground we can stand on there. Um, and, and also the, like we talked a lot about the translation of information. That's, that's a very rigorous discipline, but yeah, you're right. I mean, that's definitely something that I always, um, you know, I, I did get lots of these emails and I was right back and I say, Hey, I don't, I don't, I can't say this is going to work. And, you know, you could try to try to say that, but yeah, definitely it's, there's definitely people out there that, um, that thing that and, and like I said, so there might be something to that, you know, because other cultures have explored vibrations as a way of healing, and and, and we might just not understand that yet. But um, I would not. I mean, I just we can't under, underwrite that anyway. At the beginning, you talked about the the spider's web and sort of translating back into that and communicating do you literally mean communicating with the spider and if so what would you say to it <laughs> well i think this is a great question so we, we are actually trying to um you know communicate with different species and trying to figure out how can we influence i mean of course the um the, the human interest is very different than the spider's interest, right? So we're not the spider's not gonna be interested in talking to us probably about the weather or you know, I don't know, politics or whatever. Um the spider is gonna be interested in finding the next fly. And so well, so our communication is gonna be something like, um, you know, can we can we pretend that there's a fly here and can we attract the spider to come to that point? You know, can we understand exactly how that works and can we trick quotation marks the spider to think there's a fly and, and what is the signal we need to give to the web to make that happen 
um, you know, can we pretend we're another type of spider? You know, spiders use this to um, attract mates. You know, that's how they find each other when they uh, when they look um, you know to mate, and they they use vibration signals for that. They have a way of, of alerting you know, you know in, in the different colonies other spiders of threats, and so there's a whole spectrum. So the, the the communication is not is going to be around those contexts, you know, because that's the, that's the things they're interested in. You know, they're not interested in. So we have to come to the same level of, of communication in terms of what we're going to talk about, I guess. So, um, but I think there um, there are um, you know, and, and there are people that actually are are interested in in you know exploring the the questions of of the you know, the, the intelligence of spiders or other animals in much more rigorous ways, and maybe that's a community that could be brought into this if once we understand how to communicate with different species um there's a there's a there's a lot of biologists that are essentially looking at understanding communication between species themselves and so i think there's some there's some interesting overlap there yeah but it but it is going to be um you know it's going to be a simple it is a simple thing in the beginning um and then we can see where it will take us but um yeah i mean i was sort of saying that humans are just one species out of many that are you know they're all we all live in our own world basically and and i think yeah. we all we all have different interests, what we want to do. And, but, but there, there could be an overlap for sure. And, and I think for, for us, at a minimum level, we, we look a lot to spiders and spider webs um, as a way of understanding how they build materials. And it's a fascinating problem by which they, they make this web. I mean, that's a level of intelligence or, or, or capability that we just don't have. You know, we don't have um, a manufacturing capability that, that does that. You know, we have 3D printers, but they're very simplistic compared to what the spider can do. You know, spiders can make a strength of steel cables um, on demand as a living 3D printer. They eat the fly, they make the web, and they they can change the web. They live in it, and that's something we can't we cannot program anything like this. So there's a lot of really exciting things. So so your question, I mean, but but I'm more interested in perhaps as I would say it is, can we understand how the spider lives in its world, and can we mimic that in a way? you know, not using an actual spider, but can we create a technology that would behave like a spider and, but that would, you know, produce a material, maybe not silk, maybe a different material, maybe a different, um, maybe a polymer, maybe a metal, or maybe a combination of metals and polymers um, that would reflect something that's much more relevant for us, you know, which would be an engineered system, maybe a fabric, maybe clothing, you know, and, and so on. So, you know, beginning to think about materials as a way of, building an intelligence in a material system that would allow it to respond to the environment and have a some sort of conscious behavior where you know your your fabric would become would become thicker when you when it's cold and and it would shrink when it's warm and 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 there've been incipient attempts to do that of course but not at the fidelity that nature does so that's a big space out there for mimicking biological systems in that way Thank you so much to Professor Marcus Bueller for talking to me and for allowing us to share with you some of these sonifications that he's made as part of all this fascinating work. If you'd like to know more about the work that Marcus and his team are doing, I can highly recommend the feature on the Physics World magazine in January and on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com. Sonifying science from an amino acid scale to a spider silk symphony. And of course, we'll be back soon with an episode exploring the major breakthrough at the UK's Jet Laboratory in the quest for practical nuclear fusion. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.